We're in a series called Mind Matters. Today we're going to talk about mind frame, how you frame up what you think about, and the structure in which you live your life, okay? Mind frame is the, today's message. I'm reading from a book called Anatomy of the Soul. It's by Kurt Thompson. Kurt is a medical doctor who specializes in the brain, okay? Now, that would make him a psychiatrist. That word is scary, so I don't use that word often because people run from that, but He's a medical doctor who specializes in the study of the brain, which is, to me, absolutely fascinating. He writes these words. Quote, I think I'm losing my mind. Don't point, don't, uh, don't do anything, just listen. I think I'm losing my mind. No, I didn't hear this from a psychotic. Instead, I heard it from George, a patient of mine, who had to pick up his intoxicated 17-year-old daughter from an underage drinking party the weekend before. His daughter, Kristen, had, gone, had done this once before, and it had embarrassed him terribly. And now she'd done it again, drinking herself into unconsciousness so that he had to carry her into the home. As he sat in my office, George had the appearance of a ragged, beaten pauper, not the dot-com multimillionaire that he was. He was an expert in the latest technology, and he was all about being wireless. But the wiring of his daughter's brain, question mark, he knew nothing, period. He was ignorant of the role he played in shaping her mind. He said he was a man of faith, but at that moment, God seemed rather impotent. When it came to his daughter's life, George's anxiety was growing like a tsunami. And for all of his economic clout, he felt powerless to stop the tide. Even if you've not been in such an extreme situation like everyone else, you probably have thought or said, I'm losing my mind. It's okay to nod. I'm losing my mind sometimes. Maybe when the checkbook wouldn't balance. Perhaps you couldn't remember where you put your keys. Or... Are, there seemed to be you were unable to stop a critical thought, shaming thoughts about someone. Or on those Sundays, when you yelled at your spouse and kids on the drive to church, only to paste on a smile and begin the perfect family act as soon as you pulled into the parking space. We can go now. <laughs> Don't raise your hand. Has that happened to anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah, that's kind of telling you. In parentheses, Thompson writes, I think all church services should begin with confession. <laughs> right at the door of the members that proceeded into the worship, uh, proceeded, uh, the worship service. End of parentheses. What exactly are we talking about, though, when we talk about losing our minds? What do we think we're actually losing? It's a great, great question. You've had moments where you can... You can remember where you were when as a Ken Griffey Jr. hits the home run. You remember where you were, but you can't remember what you had for lunch yesterday. You can remember certain things, other things are just gone. And then you wonder, how is my brain even wired? How did God fearfully and wonderfully make me? And, and how is my, that going to really matter in the long haul of things? What's going on inside of our heads? 
There are 100 billion neurons bouncing around inside of our brains. 100 billion neurons. And those are called brain cells. The cells have different forms, and they take on different forms because they have different jobs. But most of the time, the jobs are fairly similar. They communicate biochemically at points called synapses. And I thought synapses were actually a thing. They're not a thing. They're actually a space. A synapse is a space between between the cells, the neurons, and it allows communication between the neurons to happen. So when someone says there's a lot of space in your head, it's true. It's called synapses. It helps you communicate. But what that does is, since it's not an actual object, because it occurs to me now, there's nothing to drag it or to slow it down, which means the brain is super fast with 100 billion of these flying by at the speed of the brain. It's amazing. So the flow of information is is constant and it's furious, it's super fast. That, and those cells can talk, one cell can talk to about 10,000 cells at a time. And that explains, as I, as I did the research this week, that explains why sometimes when I call up something in my brain, I get a busy signal. <laughs> it's working on something else right now. And then later, do you ever have this? And later it comes back to me. Bob Smith, that's his name. In the middle of the night, I wake up and announce the guy I couldn't say hello to. Our, our brains are amazing. If, uh, we were going to show the video, but for the sake of time, we didn't. But uh, just write the name down, Mark Gunger, G-U-N-G-O-R, G-U-N-G-O-R. He's a pastor, although you would never guess it by watching the video. Um, Mark has a, a seminar called Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. And, but and it's like an hour, hour and 20 minute YouTube, you can grab when you go home today. You don't have to watch the whole hour and 20 minutes. Get to the section where he has a men's brain, women's brain. I'm telling you, you're going to laugh until a few thousand neurons come out your nose. It, it is incredible. Mark Gunger says that men's brains are little boxes. It's a file cabinet with boxes. All the boxes have one item in them each, one subject. You want to talk about that? You open that box, you pull that out, you talk about it. When you're done, you put that box away. None of the boxes talk to each other. They don't, you can't pull out more than one box at a time, only one at a time. Can I get an amen, guys? Right? And then there is a box in the brain with nothing in it. And that's the nothing box. That's where guys go when they're asked, what are you thinking? And they say, what, guys? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. We're not thinking nothing. My wife asked me, I say, what do you think about nothing? What do you think about what you think? I'm not thinking nothing about nothing. <laughs> nothing. What's there? Just a dial tone, not even a busy signal. <laughs> My children don't know what a dial tone is. So there you go. Gunger goes on to say, there's a woman's brain. It is not a file cabinet with boxes. It's, it's a wrap of barbed wire with electrical stuff going through it. And because it's Valentine's Day, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Mark Gunger, Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. That five-minute clip is wonderful. Watch it today if you can. So there's men's brains, women's brains, and then there's another animal called a middle school brain, which we're, we're not sure what's happening with that brain. But have you ever noticed children grow, and when they grow, their feet get larger, nose gets larger, their head comes up. Uh, I, uh, I don't know about you, but my, my glands were such that when I was growing through junior high, we called it junior high back then, not middle school. But when I was in junior high, I could 
take three showers a day, my forehead was still greasy because it just, it was just a pizza in the making. It was just greasy, you know. And, and so it was just the way it was. You know, I, the brain is the same way in that the feet, ears, nose is all growing at different speeds in middle school. It only makes sense that the brain would be having the same kind of a challenge. So what do we have in common? Here it is. All the brains, when they're born, are born with a nature bent to sin. We talked about this a week ago. There is no hope, there is no help apart from coming to Christ. That brain is always going to go down a bad path. The Old Testament would put it this way. All we like sheep, in a world picture, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone goes their own way. And you know, if you've ever seen sheep, if they start to run, they'll all run for no reason. It's a stampede. And that's what the world system does. When it's bent, hell-bent on bad thoughts, bad actions, bad attitudes, bad anything, fill in the blank, it's like sheep in stampede. There is no stopping it. There's no reason to it save the coming of the good shepherd who saves our souls and picks us up in our sorry estate and brings us to the point of heaven, but then does something to our hearts as well. He rescues us not only for heaven, but he helps us here on earth. And he gives us an opportunity for our minds to be renewed and changed. And that's the hope. So our brains start out as only bent towards sin, but then Christ comes. When we trust in him, we get this everlasting life and hope. So why in the world am I so conflicted? Romans chapter 7. Look with me there, verse 14. We know the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Have you ever been there before? Don't raise your hand. Just, you just have been there. The things you don't want to do, you end up doing. Things you want to do, you don't get done. You're not alone in this. this con the conflicted nature that you plod through is nothing new. And the writer of Scripture, the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, says, I'm conflicted all the time. And the, and the conflict is so real because I have Christ in me. I want to live a life of hope and of virtue and purity. And in the very next moment, it's as if your brain is saying, get out of my way, I'm going to do what I want to do and live my way. And some Christians would actually admit that before they came to Christ, they were less convicted and conflicted, sorry, they were less conflicted than they are now. So they thought they'd come to Christ and live happily ever after. No. Now you have two natures. You have this old nature, the sinful nature, and now you have the new nature in Christ, and the two are in one body, and only one's going to win. So you want to make sure that the right one wins, but because the conflict is absolutely real. Verse 21. So I find this law at work, although I do want to do good. Evil is right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. Verse 23. But I see another law at work in me, waging war. That's how you feel, isn't it? You're so conflicted. It's waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me, saying, sin is at work within me, and righteousness is at work, and one of them is going to win. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, I can't stand myself at times. You just want to tear up the wallpaper. You're so conflicted. He said, who will rescue me from this? Prior to faith, your mind only has one drive, and it's towards selfishness and sin, towards survival, your own way. But now with Christ in our lives, 
there's this bent now towards righteousness and we're doomed to have this frustration and if you deny it, it you don't realize there's a civil war going on for good and bad in your heart and if you deny it, you will live a life of frustration and disillusionment as a Christian and, and there is no hope except for Christ himself. The end of the passage, verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me. It just, it's only because of the work of Jesus Christ in my life. That's the only path of victory. In and of myself, I, I would just self-destruct. I don't fully get it. I don't fully understand it. We have, to, we have to accept the fact that we are less than perfect. And that's why we don't put people on pedestals because you, you, you see a person and you realize, man, it must be nice to be you know, working with them. They're just perfect. The reason they're perfect is because you're far away from them. If you got close to them, then you would see how imperfect they are. Then you'd just see just how annoying they could be. See, people from a distance are always perfect. It's the, it's the grass is always greener, you know. But then when you get up close to them, you realize they're no different than anyone else. We don't fully understand it. We just know we can't win this battle apart from the help of the Lord. And through it all, we want, we want to win the battle. We want to be saying, thanks be to God who gives me the victory. But we're not sure where we really stand. And I'm so grateful Romans doesn't end in chapter 7 because chapter 8 opens... There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's the real standing. That's where we really are. If you have a little voice inside of you that says you're still condemned, that voice is not from God if you're a believer in Christ. Get that. I hope you get this. This will be worth the trip. If you're saying my life does not matter or I am still stuck in my sin, there is therefore now no condemnation. Either that's true or God's telling a lie. And it's the first. It's true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the issue is not, am I living a perfect life? The issue is, am I in Christ? Because if I'm in Christ, there's no condemning happening. What we have from heaven is Jesus screaming, run for the finish line, finish the course, keep the faith, run well, don't look back. May the new man win as the old guy dies inch by inch, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, it, it reveals sin, it's powerless to do, it's, it, it, because it's weakened by the flesh, God does by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be the sin offering. So you see, you, all the law does is it reveals the sin, you realize just how desperately we need the Savior, but the law reveals sin, it can never save us. So you could obey every law, obey every rule in the world, it would never save you. But thanks be to God, he comes, gives to us Christ, he sets us free, and he gives to us this life because he pays the sin, he is the sin offering. So there is no condemnation. Now, apart from Christ, when we try to do it on our own, we're going to experience condemnation, hopelessness, entrapment, exhaustion, depression. That, but that's not the way God sees us. The way God sees us as, is he sees us as his children, forgiven with a new power, his power, supernatural power. The law only tells us where we're off track. It never gets us back on to keep us on. And so we struggle. But here's the amazing thing, too. I think it's just it's a colossal part that's a sub-part of the 
this whole mind frame piece is that because God gives to us Christ, we did nothing to get Christ, and he even gives us the faith to believe, that salvation is not only permanent, but it's eternal. The world never gave that to me. The law would never offer that to me. I did nothing to earn it or deserve it. It was a gift given to me. What do you do with a gift? You just receive it. And when you have that gift, you have eternal life. And that cannot be taken away from you. It does not go away. It does not expire. And it cannot be given up on in you. This is a wonderful thing because sometimes we think, if I don't behave, the Lord's just going to leave me. That's a lie from Satan. It's what, and you know, parents will do that with kids occasionally. You'll, you'll hear, you know, if you don't behave, I'm just going to drop you off, leave you. What kind of parent, parents like that? You're going to create all kinds of performance stuff with your children. And God the Father never does that with his son. Never, ever even alludes to that. In fact, just the opposite. If you're taking notes, Philippians chapter 1, the one who began a good work in you will complete it. Not if you do this and if you do it. No, no. He will complete it. It's based upon his word, not upon our ability to tread the water or to stream, uh, to swim upstream or whatever it is. It's our word picture. No, there's no performance involved. Philippians chapter 1. Add to that Ephesians chapter 2. You're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And we're created on two good works, which the Father, in other words, he's going to change us, which he has planned in advance. So he already knows the outcome. He already knows you're in the transformation process and he's already got the good works planned out for you. Ephesians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is the one who is the father who is faithful. The scripture says, and he will do it. In other words, you cannot stop it. I love the words of Jesus and he says, you are safe in my hands. And my hands are in the Father's hands. In other words, nothing, you cannot get out of this. And if you still wonder about your eternal security, look at this, Romans chapter 8, pick it up at verse 28. And, and we know that in all things, God works for the good for those whom we love, and he calls them according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, he's working on you to become like Christ. They might be the firstborn among brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He goes on to say, nothing's going to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So what's your stand, standing before the Lord? You're a Christ follower? He sees you. He sees you with no condemnation. So if you walk around as a Christian with condemnation on your breath, in your heart, somewhere in the shadows of your doubt, that didn't come from God. That came from somewhere else. And here's what we know. If you want something to grow, you feed it, right? You nurture it. You want a plant to grow? You water it, right? You fertilize it. You want your kids to be healthy? What do you do? You feed them, right? You feed them, and it's amazing they grow, right? The same thing is true if you don't want it to grow. You just, it just starves itself out. And that's a biblical principle. You overcome evil with good. You overwhelm it with good. You want to keep weeds out of your yard, not only do you starve out the weeds, but you overcome it with really great grass. 
If you overcome it with really great grace, there's nowhere for the weed to be. So you overcome evil with good, but you starve the, the very thing that you want to be gone in your life. You see, and, and right now you're, you're saying, I, I don't know how to do that. Write down these three words. You're taking notes. Write down thinking, and then write an arrow. Feeling is the next word. So thinking is the first word, an arrow. Feeling is the middle word. And the third word is action, or if you want an ing, it's acting. And oftentimes, and preachers are guilty of this, but sometimes we, we do this as just Christians. We work on the action of our lives, and we should because it's what shows up, it's what we see. But we work at this action, and we wonder why we never correct our lives. It never gets better. Do you know why? Because our emotions, our feelings are feeding us uh, thoughts contrary and emotions contrary to our actions. So you can correct the actions all you want. If you don't give the reason behind it, you'll never feel good about it, and you can't feel good about it if the thinking is messed up. Do you understand? Thinking really is at the root of this. So we have to change our mind, and when we change our mind, and obviously sometimes there's things that work backwards to their occasions when you have to just do the right thing, and then you'll feel better about yourself, and then you'll begin to change your mind. So it does work backwards on occasion, but for the most part, this thought comes forward into a feeling, and that gives to you either the truth or a lie. And if it gives to you a lie and you believe it, you're going to act on it and then be frustrated with your life. James chapter 1, if you're taking notes, this is James 1. You have a sinful thought, and you say, well, I can think the thought because I'm never going to act on it. Okay? Don't nod your head or anything. This is what we do. And then what happens is this. In the feeling stage, you begin to rationalize the thought. It's not all that bad. I'm not hurting anybody but myself. But what happens is you become rationalizing to the action. Well, it wouldn't be so bad. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. It's not that as bad as what everybody else is doing. And then the next thing you know is you've allowed yourself to commit an act that you would never have done if you'd just gone to it. But your thinking was warped your emotions played a part to rationalize it, and then you act on it. And what James says is, if you let that thought stay in your head, it will take root in your life, it will blossom in your life like a plant, that's the word picture, and when it comes, it will bring forth death. And the death that you'll experience is the death of whatever the violation is. If you think, oh, I can steal for a living, that'll be the death of your freedom over here. You'll go to jail. See, that's the obvious one. I like to tell you stories about my dad. My dad, I've told you, he's been in heaven for a few years, but my dad used to preach a sermon. Here you go, you ready? This is free, not in the notes. My dad would preach a sermon that was called, Watch Where You Pitch Your Tent. I know, that made no sense to me either. Watch Where You Pitch Your Tent. And then my dad would tell the story, Old Testament story, of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he would talk about how righteous people lived away from those sinful cities. But then there was a day when some people decided, you know what, they aren't so bad. And they began to kid themselves, lie to themselves. And so they pitched their tent towards Sin City. And then eventually over time, that sin wasn't quite so sinful. And then pretty soon they got more and more used to it. And you know what it brought? It brought destruction. And and all throughout the sermon, I can hear my dad say it. And it all started when you pitched your tent. You didn't fall into sin over here. No, no. 
It started over here. Okay? So we were watching the guy video a little bit ago, right, guys? And so, guys, when there is a woman in the office that flirts with you, women, you can pretend you're not listening right now. There's a gal that flirts with you. That, that's not a small thing. That's a big thing. I want you to think about it as, oh, okay, that's all right. Boom. I pitched my tent. No. Think of yourself as in the woods, and the woods is on fire. You cannot stomp that fire out. You just can't. Your only hope is to do what? Run. Right? So, if you just have a match, and it drops to the ground, right? You could step on that. That's just a moment, right? But if it's anything more than that, my word to you is, run, baby, run. Get away from it. And if you say, well, I might offend them, offend them. It's okay. If it saves your relationships. Because you will pitch your tent, you will get used to it, and eventually it will bring forth sin, and that will be the death of whatever. Okay. So, the issue of the mind is this. There is no condemnation in Christ. If there's no condemnation, then how can I make that a reality in my life? How can I make that come to full fruit? Romans chapter 12 gives us the answer to that. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, get this, I call you brothers and sisters, you are believers in the Lord. This is not for the unbeliever, this is only for those who are committed to Christ, to walk in faith. If you aren't there, you don't have that conflict. But by the mercy, not by the judgment of God, not by the harshness, it is by the mercies of God. This is the kindness, the gentleness of God. And you offer your body. Therefore, I urge you, I beg of you, another translation says. Another one says, I beseech you. I urge you is not strong enough. It is, I urge you in the strongest voice I have. Give that life, your body included, to the Lord. And that is a living sacrifice. There were only two living sacrifices in the whole Bible. One was Isaac, early in in, uh, biblical history, and his father laid him on an altar because he had no sacrifice to test his faith. And the only other living sacrifice was Jesus himself. You lay yourself as a living sacrifice, and that is holy and pleasing to God, and that is your, it says, true and proper. Really, it's literally, it is your reasonable service. It is the only rational kind of service or worship. So you're saying to yourself, I thought worship was something I got. I went to church to get. In fact, I've heard this before. People say, I didn't get much out of worship today. Well, yeah, it wasn't for you to get something out. It was for you. Worship is an offering to the Lord. I bring a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. I'm offering something to the Lord. The fruit of my lips, the the the, the, a piece of my purse, part of my, my pocketbook. It is my heart. It is the scripture. I'm offering something to the Lord, not what I get out of it, but what I give to the Lord. And he's saying, when you give your body to the Lord, that is worship. Now we're talking worship. And when you do this, this is pleasing to the Lord. It brings a smile to his face. Worship in this place is where we offer of something hugely valuable and you know what your body is about as good as it gets and your mind what a beautiful thing to give to the lord and when you do that there's a negative and a positive now you do not conform to the world verse two 
to the pattern of this world, to society today, but you are transformed. Don't be conformed, and that's the nature of what we do. We, we look around, we take our cues from other people, and we embrace their beliefs. We do what they do because it's what we see. We have to stop mimicking what the world system or society does, hoping that somehow we can just mimic it and somehow make the world a better place. It'll never, it'll never be better by you just mimicking what they do. So don't be conformed. Don't fit into the pattern of the, of the mold of the world. Instead, be transformed. Have a new power. Do you get this? This has to take over. You have to starve the old guy, and you have to superfeed the new guy. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you're able to test and approve what God's will is. You want to know God's will? His, his good, his pleasing, his perfect will? He needs your body. He needs your total commitment first. And, and that, that body that is given to him is an act of worship. And you say, no matter what it is, Lord, I will follow, I will do. And when that happens, it, it's kind of like taking off a set of clothes and putting on a new one, Colossians chapter 3. You are taking off the old man, Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10, and you're putting on a new fr- fresh set of clothes like a new man that's renew- being renewed in the knowledge of the image of his creator. Our lives in, be, are different because they're under this new ownership. The old guy then is squelched. The new guy comes alive, comes alive. And he provides a new framework in which to think, like verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. You'll think differently about other people. You'll think differently about yourself. You'll be in sober judgment in accordance to the faith that's distributed to each of you. You'll think differently about other people. You'll think differently about yourself. He'll give you sound judgment, an accurate view of yourself open and honest about your strengths and your weaknesses and then you can address your gifts your abilities and the holes in your life the areas you need to grow up in but you can be honest because it's safe and then you can love out of sincere heart verse 9 you can hate what is evil you can cling to what is good that will never happen if christ isn't in total control of your life and you cannot be devoted to one another in love unless you love the same thing and the same one. You cannot honor one another above yourselves if, if the Lord doesn't have you. I think what will happen is this. Go back to the neuron thing. When the Lord transforms the thinking, I think it, it's like detox of the brain, supercharged fuel in the brain. You will think differently. You'll have better hope, better promise. Not only will your thinking be better, you'll be a better problem solver, more creative. You'll have more energy. Your attitude towards others will be more hopeful because you are hopeful, because not of your own strength, but the Lord is hopeful in you. But that will only happen if you give your body to the Lord. Now, sometimes we're thinking, you know what, I could kind of half do this. You know what will happen? You will be, Romans 7, conflicted. And that, that war will continue. And you just need to let go of the old guy. You, he's had all the time in the world. And he hasn't gotten you where you need to be. And you can embrace the new man. And that new person in Christ in you. Let him flourish in your life. Give him every corner of your life. He will renew your mind 
and give to you a new way, new perspective, and a new energy to live for him. I think it's time that we just personally take time to make those decisions. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and and we're realizing more and more most of the issues of our lives come out of the thinking. And that's what gets us in trouble. If we're not on a good base, we, we can't we can't think productively. Our conclusions will be wrong when we start with the wrong stuff to begin with. And so perhaps your prayer this morning is, God in heaven, I'm, I'm realizing again how wonderful the brain really is. And I'm, one, I, I'm realizing too how conflicted I am And like the Apostle Paul, at times, Lord, I have to admit, oh, wretched man that I am, apart from your good hand of grace, I'd never have victory. Some right where you're seated this morning, you just would open your eyes, look at your hands, and say, uh, Lord, take my hands. Take my heart. Some would pray, God, my eyes, my feet, my mouth, sanctify my mouth. Take my whole being. Save my heart for heaven, but, but save my feet for righteousness. May th- my mouth be useful to your glory. Would you transform me? And start that with a renewed mind. For some in the room, you've, you've never really trusted Christ. And so you're saying, you know, there's not much conflict because I, I've never really come to Christ, but I see the need for him now. And your prayer is, Lord, save me. I need Christ to be mine. I don't stand a chance apart from him. He promises that whoever comes in faith, he'll take. And whoever he takes, he'll work on work that he starts he promises he'll finish and so we have wonderful hope Lord may we view our lives as lives where there is no condemnation and when it comes Lord may we um, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ so we kick that thought out and may we realize we are sound and secure in Christ and in Christ alone. Nothing will separate us from the love that is in Christ that you gave to us. So we can charge ahead knowing with full confidence that you're with us because you promised to complete the work. So Father, this week I pray for some small victories. I pray for some mind games to be won for the glory of your dear son. I pray for some doubt to be filled, backfilled with some faith. I pray for some fear to be backfilled with some great holy confidence that the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. 
Uh, Lord, I pray for uh, those of us who struggle with jealousy and, uh, and rage. There be a sweet sense of contentment in our hearts. Would you do the work in us? Give to us small victories so we can see progress that keeps us moving forward, I pray. And I thank you now for what you are doing and what you will do this week. In Christ's wonderful name, we pray these things. The church says, amen.